Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're in the fourth week going into verse 2, and you're probably thinking you're going to hear, turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for an awfully long time. Um, It's probably true. Romans chapter 1, reading the introductory section, Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask you that this time as we look into your word and we examine it, Lord, and as we are examined by it, that we would truly understand it, that you might illumine our minds so that we understand what you have inspired Paul to write here, Lord, that we might understand it rightly and that it might change us and transform us. Help us, Lord, not only to understand it, but to love it and to want to pursue you and pursue your word with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had someone uh, make a promise to you? You know, one of these promises that you're pretty excited about, and later they break the promise. Have you ever had that? And it's disappointing because they've made this promise, and now they've broken the promise. When I was six, this is the promise that, first promise I remember being made to me. When I was six years old, my father bought me a fishing pole at Christmas. Um, Christmas time, he bought me this fishing pole. I was excited about it. <coughs> I had my name on it. And, and he said, on your seventh birthday, I'm going to take you fishing. And so you can imagine for six months, I looked forward to going fishing with my dad on my seventh birthday. It was a promise he had made. Nine days before my seventh birthday on June 20th of 1980, he was killed in an accident. So the promise was broken. Now, of course, he didn't attempt or desire to break the promise. But what I learned from that, I remember at that time realizing that the promises of men are somewhat empty because they can't determine their own futures. I mean, I realized that as a young man, young boy even. Wow. Guys can't, we can't determine our own future, so our promises are not really all that trustworthy. Second time it happened to me was a couple of years later. My mom had a boyfriend at the time named Robert. And Robert had promised to take me fishing also. <clears throat> now, he didn't die. <laughs> and I'm not yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's David, yeah. But I still remember waiting outside for him to come and pick me up. And he didn't show. Now, he wasn't prevented because of death from showing. He just flaked out. And I learned from these experiences that the promises of men are not ultimately trustworthy because they do not have control of their own future and because they are sinful and likely to disappoint us someday, aren't they? Have you ever met another human being who never disappointed anybody? Doesn't happen. That's why I was always struck uh, by the name of a men's organization that grew in, in, in popularity for years, and it was a movement called Promise Keepers. You all remember it was filling out stadiums. I went to Washington, D.C. with Promise Keepers for this million men prayer thing at at the mall in Washington, D.C., and I remember thinking to myself, Promise Keepers, and and I'm skeptical and 
cynical and all that. And so I was thinking to myself, I wonder how many of these guys are really promise keepers. Now, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not in favor of getting men together and endeavoring to keep the promises we make. I certainly am. But if our hope with regard to Christ and salvation in any way lies with our being able to keep our covenant with God, we won't have any true hope. We will not have the gospel, which is otherwise defined good news. What we will have instead is another law or system that we have to keep. We might call it the gospel, but it'll be a burden to us because we will think in some way it is dependent on our ability to keep the promises God has made. See, God's fulfillment of his own promise, God's fulfillment of his own promises is essential to the gospel. It's absolutely essential to the gospel. It points us to the fact that he not only made the promise, but that he is also the one who keeps the promise. And when we understand that God not only made it and keeps it, but keeps it, it gives us great assurance, does it not? The good news is that God has fulfilled his promises in Christ. And because of that, we can be assured that he will continue to. God has fulfilled his promises in Christ. And because of that, we can be assured that he will continue to. The gospel demonstrates that God is the ultimate, unfailing promise keeper. And because he is, we have great confidence that he will never fail us. Today I want to look first at the gospel of God. As Paul says in Romans 1.1, the gospel of God. Second, I want to look at how God has proven to be a promise keeper through his work in Christ. And then third, how God's demonstrating that he keeps his promises is a great source of assurance for us. Look with me at Romans 1.1. By way of review, remember that Paul says that he is first a servant of Christ Jesus, a surprising word focusing on the fact that he both understands that it's both an honor and a humbling thing to be a servant of Christ Jesus, of the Lord. He goes on to say that he's called to be an apostle, referencing his office. So he's referenced his master as Christ, whom he serves, and his office is apostle. He is one whom is one of the foundation pieces of the church by writing the letters that he has written in the New Testament. And then he says he's set apart for something. When he was set apart, we went into this whole idea about before the foundation of the world, God set us apart for something last week. We talked about that. And he was set apart, and I didn't really ever go into what. I mean, I did say the gospel. But I never explained that much. And now we're going to understand what it is he was set apart for. Today we're going to just begin part one of that. What is the gospel of God? Part one, in a sense. What is the gospel of God? When we hear the word gospel, we rightly think of the doctrine, usually. Most of us rightly think of the doctrine. We hear the word gospel of this doctrine. We were, God created us. We sinned. Because of our sin, the punishment of God is abiding upon us. Right? The judgment of God is abiding upon us. We will be eternally condemned in hell for justly. Christ came to pay that penalty for us. For those who believe, so that if we trust in him, we will not get the penalty of hell, the penalty for our sin. Instead, we will get the righteousness of Christ, and we will get the eternal reward of being with God forever in heaven. We rightly think of that. What we don't often do is define the word gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. Good news. And I have to stop and ask you, is it good news for you? 
I mean really good news. The kind of news that when the shepherds heard of Jesus' birth, they, along with the angels in heaven, were praising God, worshiping and singing. Just hearing about it, is that good news for you? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and, and, it, and it really rocked me today in my office as I was reading it. Can we honestly say at this moment that this, the gospel, that this is the greatest and best news that we've ever heard? I'm getting to the position in which I feel that if we cannot say that, then to put it at its mildest, we ought to feel very doubtful as to whether we are Christians at all. So why wouldn't we feel it's the greatest good news we've ever heard? I've heard lots of good news. Why wouldn't we feel? Sometimes I don't. So why don't I always feel it's the greatest good news I've ever heard? I'll give you three reasons. One, we don't understand how sinful our sin is. Don't understand how sinful our sin is. Two, we do not understand, do not understand how everlasting and dreadful the punishment that accompanies our sin is. In fact, we don't even like to mention it. I challenge you to find a recent gospel presentation you've heard in pop evangelicalism that even brings up hell. We don't take it seriously. And so we don't know how good the good news is. Third, we do not know how great the gift of salvation is. We do not know how great this gift is. And so we don't glory in it every time we think of it. Why? Because often we write it off as something just like, well, God forgave me. What? That ought to astound you that the holy God of the universe who cannot even look at you because of your sinfulness has forgiven you. And why? Because of Christ. When you look at the cross, it ought not to be an affirmation to you of how worthwhile you are. When you look at the cross... It ought to be the greatest affirmation to you of how sinful you are. That the Lord of glory had to crush his own son just to relate to me and to you. But he did it. He did it. And that's supposed to be fantastic news. That is supposed to be the greatest good news there is. Because at that moment, we were not just forgiven for our sins. The righteousness of Christ's perfect life was imputed to our account. So that we stand before God, he doesn't just look at us and go, you're forgiven. He looks at us and says, you're holy. And we know we're not. That ought to be the greatest good news we ever heard. We know what our lives are like and have been like. And yet God will look at us because we're in Christ on that day and say to us, you are holy. Well, not only is it the good news, Paul says, but it's the good news of God. It's the good news of God. So what does that mean? Look, scholars look at this in, in three different ways. And there's arguments about it. I'm going to tell you where I land from my Greek studies. But there is a genitive word here. Okay, That's a case. That's the noun case. It's a genitive. That's probably completely meaningless, meaningless to most of you. I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. When he says that's, that genitive, whenever we see a case of the genitive, we always insert this word of. Right, Russell? Mitch, you guys have had Greek. When you see a genitive, you stick in of, right? The question is, what does of mean? And so there are multiple different things that you can look at nuancing-wise. 
But here are the ones the scholars argue over in regard to this. Does the gospel or the good news of God refer to the source of the good news? Therefore, God is the source of the good news that we have or the source of the gospel. It's from him. That would be in its subjective sense. Or is it objective? Is it the good news about God? So they argue about that. Does that of mean from God or about God? I'm going to tell you contextually, I think it means both. That's what they're going to call a plenary genitive. It means both of them. Here's, look, at, look at this and I'll show you really quickly. The gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay? Which he promised beforehand. The gospel of God, which he promised for, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's coming from him here, right? This is explaining it as the source, isn't it? Now look at this. Go back and read this because that's kind of, you could almost put that phrase in parentheses. Go back to the gospel of God. The gospel of God, now skip to verse 3. Concerning his son. Bracketed with the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So not only is it from God, but it's what? Concerning his son, it's about God. It is both the good news from him and the good news about him. Now next week we're going to be talking about the good news about him. This week we're going to be talking about the good news from him. The good news from him. We want to focus on how the gospel is really good news from God. He's the source of it. He made the promises that are the good news. And he fulfilled the promises in Christ. Which really is the ultimate good news. So as we turn to see how God made the promises and kept the promises. I want you to understand that I'm focusing on God as both the source of the gospel. And at the same time, I'm obviously saying that God is the content of the gospel. It not only comes from him but it's fulfilled by him, and he is the good news of it. That's a mouthful, and we're going to flush it out for about four weeks. But look with me at Romans 1-2, and we'll try to dissect this. The gospel of God, starting at the end of verse 1-1, it says this, con- oh, excuse me, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is encapsulating the idea that God made a promise in the Holy Scriptures through his prophets. And he's assuming in this verse that you understand that he's announcing that God kept the promise. That God makes promises and keeps them. He's telling you that right at the get-go. And he really wants you to understand two two truths here. Two truths he wants to understand. First, he wants us to know that the gospel he is preaching is not new. This is not new news. This is good news. Now, there is something about it that is new. It has been historically fulfilled in Christ, and the historical fulfillment in Christ on the cross is new. But the promise that that day would come is not new. The good news is not new. It's an old news. Look back at Genesis And we'll flush this out a little bit. Genesis, we'll start in chapter 3. Genesis' first book in the Bible, as most of you are aware. It's the one book I could always identify when I was an ignorant sort of Christian. I could always identify Genesis and Revelation. I always knew right where those two were. Everything else in between I was confused about. Um, I did not study much then and... Didn't know where really anything was, but I do, did know where Genesis was. 3.15, right after Adam and Eve fall, the serpent, right, Satan, leads them into this fall, and they follow along right with it and buy the lie and eat the fruit that God forbids them to eat, and God pronounces a curse. And in the midst of the curse, God demonstrates his grace, which just ought to blow you away right from the get-go. God's pronouncing a curse, and in the midst of it, 
he announces his grace. And he announces what people call the proto-evangelion. Proto meaning first, evangelion meaning gospel. It's the first gospel, the first good news. Look at 3.15. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent here, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Listen, he announces to Eve that from your seed a man will come, and that man will crush Satan. But he'll die doing it. Announces it right at the get-go. Right after the fall. It's old news. He continues to further our understanding of that. Um, If you look in Genesis, also go to chapter 12. This is Moses, obviously, writing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Genesis being the first one. And he continues to further our understanding of the covenant that God is making the promise that God is making to save men. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says this. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now, at this point, we really don't even know who Abram is when you get to this part of Genesis. It just all of a sudden goes, jumps in. Now the Lord said to Abram. Who's Abram? Some dude from Ur of the Chaldees, right? God comes to this man. Abram meaning exalted father, by the way. That's what his name means. He comes to him and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Listen to this next part. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the beginning of when God starts to lay down what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant or the promise to Abraham that through Abraham's family would come the man, through Abraham's seed, would come him who would bless all the nations. Who is that? Jesus. Look at chapter 15 because the covenant continues to be given some flesh there. as we look at these texts, we're going so briefly through them, I, don't even, I can't even do them justice, but they're probably, the three texts we'll look at here in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 are probably the three most important texts in the Bible in regard to the promises of the gospel that God made. He says this, Abram was wanting to know, Lord, how do I know I can trust you will keep your promise of a land for my people? You know, chapter 12, you made me this promise. How do I know you can trust it? That I can trust your promise. That's what he says. And God makes his own life the guarantee. Listen to this. Starting in verse 8, chapter 15. But he said, he being Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Speaking of the land that God promised him. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. We don't need to go on and read what else he lays out there, but this is an amazing passage. It's a weird passage to most of us when we read it, but it's an amazing passage nonetheless. God has made a promise to Abram, and that promise is is really the beginning of the gospel promise outside of Genesis 3.15. It's really where it starts to be covenanted specifically through Abraham, where it will come through the Jews, through Christ specifically, Jesus. And so he's made this promise, and Abram's like, how do I know I can trust it? Now, God could easily respond, well, dummy, I'm God. Of course you can trust my promises. But God goes a step further and makes an oath. He makes a guarantee. Now, we think of um, covenants and oaths this way oftentimes. If I'm a criminal and I'm standing before a judge and I want to get out on bail, I will say to the judge, um, I promise I'll come back and stand trial. And the judge will say to me, you're a crook. I can't trust you. Can someone guarantee your promise? So let's go to somebody, somebody who can put up enough cash to guarantee your promise, right? Well, Abram's essentially saying to the Lord, I hear your promise, but how do I know I can trust it? And the Lord's response is, I'll guarantee it. You want to hear my guarantee? Take some animals, cut them in half, and lay them down there. And when you see this torch and this melting pot going between them, you know what the Lord is saying there? It's a weird imagery, but you know what he's saying? I'm going, between, I'm going between these pieces, and I'm telling you that if I fail to keep my promise, might I be cut to pieces? I'm betting my own life that I'll, cut, that I'll keep the promise. Now, can God ultimately be cut to pieces? No. But do you understand the point God is making? I am putting the very integrity of who I am as God on the fact that I will not fail to keep this promise. And I'm God and I cannot lie. Now I've confirmed it two ways. I've made a promise and I've made an oath. And I can't lie. So you have a lot of assurance I'm going to do it. In Genesis 17, he continues to fill out this covenant some more. This promise of the gospel some more. And he says this, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God comes and changes his name from exalted father to the father, Abraham, the father of many nations. He gives him a name that has the very covenant promise of salvation to the nations through the Christ inherent in it. I'm going to now name you what my promise is. My promise is that I will bring blessing to a multitude of nations. I will not fail. I have promised it. I've given you an oath. I will not fail. See, I could go through multiple other Old Testament texts to demonstrate the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament. I'm only 17 chapters into Genesis, and I've skipped a few. But I could keep going. We don't have time for it, but I could. They're all over the place. Not only does Paul want us to know that his gospel is not new, however, and that's the first thing he's telling us, promise beforehand. It's not new. It's been a promise since the fall that I will save you. 
not a new promise, it's an old promise. Not only does he want us to know that, he wants us to know something else. The second thing he wants us to understand in Romans 1-2 is that that promise was given through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The promise was given through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So one, the promise was given a long time ago. And two, you will find the promise where? Through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now lest you think the prophets means that section of the Bible that we refer to as the major and minor prophets, that is not what Paul is referring to here. Paul is referring to all the promises of God made to man in the Old Testament about Christ. In fact, I want to go further than that. Because I don't want you to be confused that Paul is just referencing some small little pieces of Scripture throughout the Old Testament. I want you to understand he's speaking about the whole Old Testament. He's saying that God gave his promises of what would come to be through the agency of men in the whole Old Testament. Listen, when you pick up your Old Testament, you want to know how you should define the Old Testament? Promises made. Want to know how you should define your New Testament? Promises kept. The promises of God, the Old Testament. The fulfillment of the promises of God, the New Testament. In fact, Paul stresses this throughout his whole letter. Look really quickly at chapter 3 of Romans. If you're back in Romans, by the way, hopefully you are. Chapter 3, he picks up on this again. And I'm not going to read all of them. I'm only going to read a few. Picks up it again in chapter 3. In verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although, listen, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets is another way to say the whole Old Testament. They bear witness to this. Look at chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm what? The promises given to the patriarchs, the fathers. He did it in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, to the fathers. Look at chapter 16, because Paul ends this letter very similarly to the way he begins it. Starting in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Listen, there was a mystery kept secret for long ages that was disclosed to the prophets that you now understand. And when we get to that scripture, we'll spend more time fleshing out this mystery and going into Ephesians 2 and 3 to do that. But I want you to understand that Paul is telling you that throughout this book, at the beginning of it, in the middle parts of it, and at the end of it, that ultimately Christ is the fulfillment of the promises. The gospel is old news that is now fulfilled. In fact, Paul says in Acts 26, when he's standing before King Agrippa, he makes a comment. He says, I'm standing trial here because, and this is a paraphrase, by the way, I'm standing trial here because of my belief, my belief in the patriarchs. Because I believe what they said is true. So I'm standing trial. Isn't that an interesting statement? I'm not standing trial here because of my belief in Jesus' death and resurrection. He doesn't say, although he goes on to flesh that out. But at the beginning, he says, I'm standing here trial, trial here because of my belief in the patriarchs. 
Paul's not the only one, however, who does this. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures after this that you're not going to have to follow me in. Luke chapter 1. Just go back a few books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Go to Luke chapter 1. We all know the story of when Mary was pregnant with the Christ, right? You guys are familiar with this? Mary's pregnant with Jesus. And she goes to Elizabeth's house, house, right? To Zachariah's house. And Zachariah's pregnant with who? John the Baptist. But she's pretty far along, right? So she goes over there. And what happens with John the Baptist? He, He leaps in the womb as soon as Mary draws near. And there's this whole thing about the fact that she's the mother of the Lord. And Mary says this in response to it. Look at verse 46, talking about the fact that the Lord is fulfilling what he spoke to her, that she would carry the Savior of the world. She says this, my soul, verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now go down to verse 54, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She understands that the Lord's mercy to her and grace to her in letting her carry the Christ is the beginning of the Lord's work to keep his promises. Look down at Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies that the father of John the Baptist is saying, and his father, that's John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Isn't that amazing? Zechariah is prophesying. It's the fulfillment of the promises God made to us that he would save us and a multitude of nations through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks of himself this way also. Not only Paul, not only Mary, not only Zechariah, Jesus speaks of himself this way. Listen, Listen to these scriptures. Don't turn there. Jesus speaking during the Sermon on the Mount, probably his greatest section of teaching that we have or the largest section of teaching, at least, that we have recorded. He says this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. After healing, after healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 46, that this Controversy broke out that he healed a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees about their disbelief in him. And he says this in John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Did you hear that? When he says Moses, he's referring to the first five books of the Bible. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In another dispute with the Pharisees, in John chapter 8, verse 56, he says this. Listen to what Jesus says. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Isn't that an amazing statement? Now I'm going to have you look with me at the last two at the end of Luke. Luke chapter 24 that I'm going to show you today. I could show you multiple of these in Peter and others, but confine it here. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. 
on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes across a couple of disciples or men who may have been following at some point who were discussing him and what they'd heard about his tomb, etc. And he comes up beside them, and in verse 25, he's talking to them. We, we hear this, because they're doubting at this point. Verse 25, and specifically, by the way, they're doubting that the Messiah would ha- ever have to suffer. They don't see how that could be. That's specifically what they're doubting. And Jesus comes to them in verse 25. He says this, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Could that be any clearer? What Jesus is saying is about himself in the Old Testament. He goes to his disciples after his resurrection in another appearance um, to his, the twelve. And we read this about it. Look at verse 44 in the same chapter. Verse 44. After he eats the piece of fish, or the fish, he says this in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We need to understand the gospel of God being preached by Paul is not new. But it's a promise beforehand, and it's promised where? Through the prophets in the Old Testament. This is how Paul can tell Timothy. When he was speaking of the Old Testament, he tells Timothy, continue in what you have learned from those who taught you, and he goes on to say, what you've learned from the sacred writings, sacred writings, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. When we understand this, we'll understand that our God not only made promises throughout Scripture, he kept them. That's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is a book telling us that God is the promise keeper. It's not like the New Testament announces something brand new. It tells us that all that stuff God promised has now come to pass. It has been fulfilled. And who was it fulfilled in? Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate promise maker and the unfailing promise keeper. The fact that God has kept his promise in Christ is the basis for our assurance. It's the basis for our assurance. My assurance that it is true that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion is that God is the promise keeper. He's kept his past promises that assures me that he will keep his future ones. My assurance that Jesus will gather his sheep and he will not lose one of them is that God is the promise keeper. My confidence that Jesus will truly return as he said, in spite of the world's mocking us about the time that has passed since he has ascended. My assurance that it will still happen is that God is the promise keeper. You see, the promise keeper, God, is our assurance. Not anything in us. Him. He is. The author of Hebrews encourages Christians to persevere in the faith in difficult circumstances. And it's an interesting encouragement that's followed by a passage. And I want to read it to you. Turn with me to Hebrews 6 and we'll end with this passage. Hebrews chapter 6. You'll see a lot of what we talked about in Genesis come out here. Surprise, surprise, by the way. Hebrews chapter 6. In verse 9, he gives the encouragement to persevere. Hebrews is right before James and right after all of Paul's letters. (laughs) 
Verse 9, he says this. Though we speak in this way, and by the way, in this way, he's talking about he's warning people who think they're a part of the faith but really aren't. They think they're okay, but they're not, and they walk away, and he says that you can't, once you've walked away, you can't return to repentance. Can't happen. He's not talking about true believers there. He's talking about people who are professors that are not real believers. And he goes on and he says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, now I'm speaking to you believers, in your case we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, so he's giving them some assurance here right off the bat, right? Though I just gave you this very frightening warning about being a false professor, I want you to know that in your case, beloved believers, we think better things, things that pertain to salvation. And he goes on, for God is not so unjust. Now listen to this encouragement to persevere. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Listen, I want you to know God isn't unjust. He does recognize that you as His beloved, as His followers, you who are saved, He he does recognize that you're persevering, that you're continuing. Continue persevering. He isn't forgetting. Why? What does he he then base it on? This this is an interesting transition. He goes on to use an example of Abraham. He says this. He uses an example of Abraham's perseverance in the faith as he waited patiently for God to fulfill his promise. See, these Christians are waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promise. Not the promise of salvation. They have that in Christ already. We as Christians are waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promise. What is that? That Jesus Christ will return. That evil will come to an end. That it will be dealt the decisive blow. And I mean by decisive. I don't, it was dealt a decisive blow at the cross. By decisive, I mean it will be terminated. It will be no more. There will be no more presence of it. It will be judged and cast into hell forever. And God's glory and his holiness and his love and his grace and his, you know, all that is all that there will be for us. No more sin. No more any of that. Just in the blessed presence of God forever. We're patiently waiting for that. And he tells him to endure, and he uses Abraham as an example. And look at this, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, remember God makes this oath to Abraham, he swears to him. He had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's when he passed between the pieces. Swore by himself. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We read about that. So that by two unchangeable things, both his promise... And the oath that he took by two unchangeable things in which it is possible for impossible, excuse me, which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen, because God made his promise and he made an oath. Because that's true. Because we know it's impossible for him to lie. Because we know he will always keep his promises. Because of that, we can do what? We who have fled from. The fled from is speaking of something. We who have run from sin, right? Who fled from this world. We who have done that. Might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God made this promise so that we could what? Have strong encouragement. So we could be assured those of us who are believers can be assured. And he goes on and he says something even 
grander about this. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hear that imagery? A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Listen to that. Not only do we have this sure, steadfast anchor of the soul so that we cannot be moved because we're trusting in the promise keeper and not in ourselves. Not only do we have that anchor so that we cannot be moved so we can continue to endure and to persevere. Not only do we have that, we have a faith that takes us into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Meaning we are taken by faith into the very presence of God. Where Jesus, verse 20, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, becoming a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus went in before us, he was the atoning sacrifice for us. He satisfied God's wrath against our sin. He imputed to us his own righteous life. He resurrected from the dead, and he's gone into the very presence of God. And because that's true, we can follow him in. Isn't that amazing? God is our promise keeper. He kept his promises in Christ. And this is the anchor for our souls, isn't it? This is our assurance. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that um, you are a great promise maker. Lord, that in the very curse which, which you brought upon man for his fall into sin in that very curse you brought good news your grace was shown in that you promised that one day you would send the messiah to crush satan to forgive us of our sin and lord you continue to be faithful to extend that in making the promise to abraham that through his seed would come one who would bless the nations. And Lord, not only did you make that promise to him, you swore it by an oath. There's no one greater by which a promise can be kept than you. An oath can be sworn but by you. Lord, you cannot lie. You keep your promises. And Lord, we know that you have in Christ. We know that this gospel is good news. It is not new, but it is good. Lord, might we um, be those who truly rejoice in it, who truly understand that you never disappoint, that you are an anchor for our soul. And Lord, that your past promises kept guarantee that the promises of the future things to come will also be kept. Might we continue to be steadfast in that, knowing the God in whom we've trusted and rejoicing in him. In Jesus' name, amen.